You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me today for another Thursday afternoon live question and answer. Every week on Thursday afternoons, at least whenever I'm in town, which has been a lot more lately, uh, on Thursday afternoons at 12 noon Pacific time, that's the time it is right now in California as I'm speaking to you, I host a live question and answer program on my YouTube channel. So the role is pretty simple here. You just write in the chat window on the side your question or your comment and I'll respond to it the best I can. I certainly don't pretend to have the answers to everything, not by a long shot. But what I do know, I'm happy to share with you, and maybe we can come to a better understanding of some things together biblically. So that's what I'm here for, and I hope that you enjoy this program. While I normally do our programs is I begin with a lead question of my own choosing before I respond to things in the chat window. So uh, I've selected a question today that came in by email, uh, but somebody may be surprised that today, and today is, uh, what is it, June 4th, I believe, yes, uh, June 4th, 2020, or 2020, we, I'm not leading with something having to do with current events. The world is in a lot of turmoil right now, at least centered in the United States. I I don't pretend to think for a moment that the United States is the center of the world. One of the things I really enjoy about our YouTube channel is that we have an international uh, viewership. And so I'm very appreciative of my brothers and sisters in Europe, in Africa, in Australia, in South America, in Mexico, uh, all over the world. I'm very pleased that they can join us together with this. But there is a lot going on in America right now. And it's going on, first of all, because we've had these several months of an extended coronavirus pandemic, global pandemic. That's affected places just about all over the world. But then recently, within the last week or maybe 10 days, uh, we've had a lot of racial tension uh, prompted by the response to the mistreatment, even the killing, we would say, of a African-American or black man uh, on the streets of Minneapolis by a white policeman. Um, People may be wondering, why am I not speaking out on that in particular on this program? Well, I'll give you a few reasons. First of all, if anybody asks me a question, I'll answer to the best of my ability. It's not like I don't want to talk about things like that. But one thing is, is um, I recently on Monday, released a video having to do with racism. And while I tried in that video to be careful to give racism, a a perspective on racism that I think goes beyond a current event, because that's really what I wanted to do. The current events come and go. Things happen and they stir up a lot of controversy and then we forget them. Uh, But the principles of God's word remain. And so I I didn't want to record something that was tied to a current event so much, but spoke to principles that may be on people's minds because of current events, but really went beyond that. Secondly, uh, I don't count myself to be an expert in these matters. Uh, I do regard myself, of course, as a believer in Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. And I think that in basic, our message as Christians is simple. I'm not saying this is the only message. But right now, we just need to give more attention to the basics and the fundamentals of the Christian life than ever. Being true followers of Jesus Christ, to put our trust in him, to not put our trust in ourselves or in human institutions, but to put our trust in him, our hope in him, to uh, love God and to love one another, to do what Jesus said were the first and greatest second commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. So I I always find that during times of conflict and turmoil, it's very important to go back to basics and do the basic things very well. Uh, I I think a third and final reason, this is all introductory before I get to my lead question, 
another reason why I'm not leading off in this video with a discussion of the whole race difficulty in the United States at this time is I have a suspicion that people are kind of welcome for at least a little bit of a break from it. It dominates the news. It dominates social media. It dominates so many things. And I'm not saying that there isn't a lot of attention that should be given to it, but surely there can be some places where we say, you know, let, let's think about something else, even if it's for a few moments. So here's our question for today. The lead question for today's program is simply this. How do angels speak? And it's prompted from a question that came from Julie. Julie, thank you for your question. Here's what she said. She says, reading about tongues of men and angels in your First Corinthians 13 commentary. Now, let, let me just back up a little bit. She mentions my commentary. It, lots of people haven't heard. Uh, so I, I just do want to say that I have a written commentary on the entire Bible that you can find at a website called EnduringWord.com. Again, that's EnduringWord.com. Now, uh, it's also available on another website called Blue Letter Bible, blb.org is that one. A tremendous Bible resource filled with many, many commentaries, not just my own. Uh, now, my own website, it's my own material. I'm able to keep it updated uh, much more day-to-day -day even than the Blue Letter Bible site, but two great resources where you can get my commentary online. And so what Julie's spot talking about is something that I wrote in my 1 Corinthians 13 commentary. And she says this, you quote Matthew Poole to say, angels don't make audible articulate sounds. How does this fit in with, for example, Gabriel speaking to Zechariah and Mary and Luke? Or the angel in Daniel who explained to Daniel about his encounter with the prince of Persia, etc. in Daniel chapter 10. Or the angels telling Lot to get out of Sodom. Seems to me that the angels were both audible and articulate. I can't reconcile Poole's comments with these scriptures. Am I missing something? Thank you, Julie. Well, Julie, you're very welcome. But let me say back in a hit, thank you. And Julie, you, you've given me a excuse to not only talk about this issue, how do angels speak or how do angels communicate, but to talk about a broader issue as well. So first of all, let, let me just take a look at the passage that you're speaking about, and then we'll get to the broader issues. Okay, here's the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verse 1 was the verse I was commenting on. And here's 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Okay, so please notice there, Paul mentions the tongues of men and of angels, uh, implying that there is some kind of angelic language. Now, we got to be careful. We don't make too much out of this. This isn't Paul's main point at all, but at least he does make at least a clear side mention Tongues of men. Now, tongues simply means languages. In some contexts, it's appropriate to translate it that way. In other places, it's okay to give it this distinguished distinction. But really, he's talking about languages. I speak with the tongues or languages of men and of angels. Now, in the Apostle Paul's day, many Jewish people believed that angels had their own language and that by the moving of God's spirit, a human being could speak that language. This may be partially what's in Paul's mind, but what Julie is talking about, what I was really getting at to, is I quote a comment from Matthew Poole. So let me read to you this paragraph from my commentary. This is what I write. Poole had a fascinating comment suggesting that the tongues of angels describes how God may speak to us in a nonverbal way. Quote, men have no tongues. Excuse me. Let me go back. Excuse that. Angels have no tongues, nor make any articulate, audible sounds by which they understand one another. But yet there is certainly a society or intercourse among angels which could not be upheld without some way amongst them to communicate their minds and wills to each other. How this is, we cannot tell. Some of the schoolmen say it is by way of impression, the way that God indeed communicates his mind, sometimes to his people, making secret impressions of the will, of his will, upon their minds and understandings. 
So you see what Matthew Poole is saying here is he's saying, well, uh, angels don't speak nor make any articulate audible sounds, uh, but they communicate just sort of by way of mental impressions. Okay, that's what Matthew Poole is saying. And I quoted that as being something of interest to me, uh, more so for what it said about what Matthew Poole thought about how God communicates with us. Now, back to Julie's question. Julie says, how do I even... It sure seems to me like angels talk in the Bible. And Julie, I want to tell you something. You are exactly correct. The, the Bible has many, many instances in it on earth where angels appear in some way on earth and they speak to human beings. Uh, it, it's also the idea here that, that we know that angels in some way speak or sing or proclaim in heaven. When Isaiah went to heaven, when John went to heaven, we're talking about what's recorded in Isaiah 6 and in the book of Revelation, they heard an angels speaking. So yes, angels speak. Now, we might ask ourselves the question, then how could Matthew Poole say this? Well, Matthew Poole said this, I think, no doubt from tradition. And maybe what he was thinking, maybe the tradition, I'm just trying to think, how would anybody think such a thing? And the only thing that comes to my mind is the idea is, well, we, we know that angels surround us and are invisible, but we don't hear them talking. If there's two angels around us in our presence and they communicate with each other in some way, but we don't hear them talking, maybe in the Middle Ages or something like that, when people were talking and thinking a lot about angels, they said, well, they don't talk. But again, that's not true according to the Bible. Now, somebody might say, well, how could Matthew Poole, who's a good Bible commentator, uh, Matthew Poole, right here. Here's a volume from Matthew Poole's commentary. I, I love this work. He, he's a good Bible commentator often. But you see, this shows us something. And Julie, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk briefly about this. When we read a Bible commentator, including myself, David Guzik, when we read a Bible commentary, we should not immediately surrender to their opinions. We should not immediately lie down before them and say, oh, you're a Bible commentator. I'm not. You must be right and I must be wrong. No, what we need to do is have a little bit of a dialogue with the commentator. And, you know, we do it through reading what they say and going back dialogue on the book, so to speak. But here's what the dialogue says. It says, OK, you make this statement. What evidence do you have biblically for this statement? Now. Matthew Poole's statement, as he says here, that angels do not make any articulate, audible sounds by which they understand one another. Okay, so that's that's what he says. Okay, here, here's our question. Mr. Matthew Poole, all due respect, we, we love your commentary, but what possible biblical basis do you have for making such a statement? He provides none in his comment that I quoted there. None. There's no biblical evidence that he gives for it. Therefore, you or I or somebody else should feel completely free to say, well, all due respect, Matthew Poole, thank you for your other contributions, but on this one, I'm not going to take what you say. Now, this is what I'm just saying. Don't immediately surrender to a Bible commentary, even a respected one. Read them, and as the Bereans, this is in the book of Acts, did with the Apostle Paul's teaching, compare it to Scripture. And if the commentator demonstrates scripturally to you that they are correct, then you say, okay, well, yeah, you're right. I didn't see it correct. But if they don't, and, and you find that the biblical argument is on your side, well, then you should feel free to, at that particular point at least, disregard the Bible commentator. It also leads me to say something else that I think is important, that when I quote something in my Bible commentary, <clears throat> It isn't necessarily because I agree with it, but often simply because I found it interesting. Now, to be honest, I first prepared my commentary on 1 Corinthians more than 20 years ago. I can't tell you exactly when. I could look it up. And, and now I've gone through it and revised it several times, but I can't even tell you exactly what it was in that comment that I quoted that made me say, oh, yeah, I want to add that. Probably it was this line that says, 
the way that God indeed communicates his mind to his people, making secret impressions of his will upon their minds and understandings. That's the end part of that Matthew Poole quote. I probably thought that that was of interest, not so much for what it said about angels, but for what it says about the way that God speaks to his people. So that's probably why I included it. But again, just because I quote a particular author or Bible commentator in my commentary, it doesn't necessarily mean that I agree with them. What it simply means is that I found it interesting to read and to consider. So I got to say, Matthew Poole's comment was interesting, but it's not true, or at least it's not completely true. Maybe somebody could say that when angels communicate with each other, other, they are silent, but we have lots of examples of when angels communicate to man, they do it with their voice. When angels communicate to God in worship, they do it with their voice. So again, interesting, but Julie, God bless you. God bless you for looking at the Bible and looking at what a Bible commentator says and comparing it to the Bible. I think that's very important for us to do. So Julie, I very much appreciated your comment. And for clarification, I have added this to the end of that quote from Matthew Poole. This is what I wrote. Poole was not correct in his suggestion that angels can't speak. In many places in the Bible, angelics beings speak, both in heaven and on earth. Yet it is interesting to consider that angels may have capacities for communication that we do not have and will not have until believers are glorified in their resurrection bodies. So I have included that in my commentary. If you were to go to my commentary right now online at enduringword.com, look up 1 Corinthians chapter 16, or 13 rather, uh, verse 1, you'd see that addition to the text. And again, my um, Bible commentary, I am grateful that it is helpful to some people, but it is and it remains very much a work in progress. I, I am always making um, proofreading corrections, spelling corrections, uh, sometimes adding things for clarification, sometimes taking things out like, ah, that doesn't belong. It is a work in progress, and I'll tell you something, it's going to be a work in progress until the day I die. Now, one more thing. I don't want to leave this subject of how do angels speak without ending with this very important word. We should not seek for angels to speak to us. This is vain and foolish, and it will lead to many serious errors if we go around seeking for angels to speak to us. My dear brothers and sisters, do not pray, oh Lord, would you send an angel to speak to me? <laughs> do not ask some angelic being to No, we don't seek for angels to speak to us. Now, someone might say, well, God could speak through an angel today if he wanted to. Okay, but that's true. Maybe that's true, but we should not seek such things. The only place to seek God's voice is in the Bible. And if someone believes that God has spoken to them in some other way, an angel spoke something to me, a God spoke something to me by his spirit, it needs to be carefully judged against the Bible and by the wisdom of God's people. Don't seek revelation from angels. Am I saying it's absolutely impossible that God could bring? Well, theoretically, yes. But remember what Paul said. He said, listen, in Galatians, even if someone else or even an angel from heaven would bring to you a message other than the gospel which I preach him, let him be accursed. Let him be separated from God. So no, we don't seek angelic revelation. You want to seek God's voice to you? Read your Bible. And again, that's not to exclude the possibility that God may speak another way, but everything has to be judged against his eternal, everlasting word. All right, that's it for the opening part here. Let me go now to our chat window and see some of the questions or comments that we've had. Luis says, 
Psalm 82, verse 6 says, you are gods. Can you explain what this really means? Because I came across a guy who said that he also was a god because the Bible even says it. Thank you. You are a true help. Okay, thank you, Luis, for your kind comments. If you were to go to my Bible commentary on Psalm 82, I think I give a pretty good explanation there. But let me just review it from my memory here. In Psalm 82, he is speaking very clearly to earthly judges. By the way, it's interesting to see how God speaks to the judicial system. If you want to see what God would say to earthly judges, those in our judicial system, read Psalm 82. And again, my commentary on that might be of help to you as you read Psalm 82. However, please understand this. When God says to earthly judges, you are gods, he's speaking in a metaphor. He's speaking in a, in a symbol. There are a few places, at least I believe two other places in the Old Testament, where people who are human judges, earthly judges, are called gods, Elohim. And the reason why is very simple. There is a sense in which an earthly judge stands in the place of God. An earthly judge, at least theoretically, has life and death in his hand. He says guilty, a person dies. He says not guilty, a person lives. In theory, at least, judges have enormous power over people's lives. So you could see why God would say to them in a picture, in a metaphor, you are gods. But in the same psalm, the very same psalm, he says, I'm going to bring judgment on you. you. You better watch what you do, dear judges, because what you do is before me and I will judge it. So in no way was it trying to say that these judges were God's equal or greater than the God of the Bible, simply because it's true. The, these gods were going to be judged by God. God stands in judgment of them. And so this is what it's about. Now, Jesus quoted this passage in one of his uh, disputes with the religious leaders. And I believe that the sense Jesus had when he quoted that passage was basically this. You guys are offended that I call myself God because Jesus clearly called himself God. Yet you don't even understand and appreciate what it means when God used the term in Psalm 82 of earthly judges. Once you learn what that means first, and then you can think about my own deity. I think that was the context Jesus added in back then. So, Luis, I hope that helps you. And uh, again, he's speaking to earthly judges because metaphorically speaking, they stand in the place of God with human destiny in their hands. Okay, going on now. Peter says, can you explain if there's a difference in the meaning of the word grace between the Old and the New Testament? Uh, Yes, Peter, I would just say this. There's not a contradiction between the ideas of grace in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but the terminology isn't exactly the same, and the idea in the New Testament is much more developed. But basically, the idea of grace in the New Testament is that uh, this is the favor of God. It's God's pleasure. When God views a person in terms of his grace, he is pleased with them. Uh, he honors. He Well, honors isn't the right word. He, he is pleased. He is satisfied with them. They give him a sense of pleasure. And grace is freely given. There's aspects of the New Testament definition of grace that are much more clear and much more precise than the general sense of the God's grace in the Old Testament. So um, they don't contradict each other. I would just say that the idea of grace in the New Testament is much more developed. So hope that helps you there. Thank you, Jane. Thanks for writing on. Jason says, hello, pastor. 
Any sermons on the books of the Apocrypha? Have you heard referring to the book of Max? I've heard you refer to the book of Maccabees a few times while preaching. Jason, no, I don't have any verse-by-verse teaching or sermons through the Apocrypha. I don't regard the Apocrypha as inspired scripture uh, the way that I regard the Old and the New Testament's inspired scripture. They are helpful books. They're useful books. They're not necessarily bad books, but I don't regard them as being what the, the fancy word in theology to use, canonical. They don't belong to the Old Testament canon. Uh, and so, yes, I do make reference of them because sometimes they have useful history in them uh, or useful ideas. It's interesting to see what the Jewish people of that day uh, thought and considered, but I don't consider them to be on the same level as inspired scripture in the Old and the New Testaments. Okay, uh, that's why I don't have any teaching on them. Donald says, can a person shorten the life, their life or lengthen their life by what they do or the way they live? Uh, does everybody have an appointed day regardless of the way they live? Oh, Donald, um, that's a very interesting question. We know that God has the span of everyone's life in his hands, in his mind. He has this. It's no mystery to God. There is an appointed day for each one of us. The idea is simply, can we kind of upset what God has planned? God planned for me to live 80 years, but I lived so foolishly, I only lived 65 years. Well, that kind of acts as if man can frustrate or defeat God's plan. And I don't think man can frustrate, well, frustrate me. Let's just say this. I don't believe that man can defeat God's plan. So um, in the end, it will be seen that God worked all things together for the accomplishment and the purpose of his will. And it'll be seen in the end that it was all good. Maybe not in any individual piece, but in the composite of it as it's all placed together. But the idea that any one of us can defeat the plan of God uh, by our own disobedience, that's really not how it works. God's plan is going to succeed. It will be established in both the smaller scale and the larger scale. Uh, but our choices make a real difference. And so we need to be aware that our choices do make a difference and that we need to live in light of that. I think that both truths are important and both need to be declared as truth. So thank you for that, Jason. Agnes says, Hi, Pastor David. Was Eve created in the six days when God created the earth or after he rested? Because Genesis chapter two makes it seems that it was after. Very confused. Agnes, I'm going to do some of this from memory. It kind of makes me want to go back and dig into it deeper. But I will say this. It seems to me that Eve was created after. Now, I don't know if I can say that absolutely. But yet, in the telling of it in Genesis chapter 1, it's giving us an overview of the creation of man. And in that aspect of the creation of Eve, it's not worried about uh, chronological density. It's okay if there's a little bit of time, although we don't know how much. It would have taken at least enough time for Adam to name all the animals, which is kind of hard to think that it was be a one-day affair. So it, it would seem to me that Eve was created after the sixth day. Eve's creation was definitely and deliberately different from Adam's. And that has theological significance in itself. So even though Genesis chapter 1 is condensing the events somewhat, uh, Genesis chapter 2 gives us a fuller treatment, which, by the way, is a common form in Hebraic literature. We find it many times in the Old Testament where a story is told in summary and then details are filled in. This is, again, is a common way that events are recounted, events are reported in the Old Testament. So I hope that helps you there, Agnes. Zachary has a question here. Zachary says, 
Was Mary Magdalene a close companion of Jesus and his disciples? Was she there with them during most of the events according to Scripture? And the Word just doesn't mention her in every instance. Zachary, we know that there was some association, of course, between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Uh, the Bible describes that there was a group of women that accompanied Jesus in many of his travels, and those women provided for Jesus. And, and this was, you see, for many of Jesus's travels, not only the 12 disciples were with him, but also a broader group of disciples, both men, but also including women. Obviously, there were no women among the 12 disciples, but among that broader group of of disciples, there were women, and uh, Jesus recognized that, and the New Testament recognized that, I think wanting to show that Jesus welcomed women disciples as well. Uh, no women among the apostles, no women among the 70 that Jesus sent out, that 70 would have been drawn from the broader group, but certainly, certainly women among the disciples of Jesus. So we just don't know how much those women were with Jesus and the other disciples. And we also don't know um, how much specifically Mary Magdalene was with Jesus and the other disciples. What we do know is this. The Bible says that Mary Magdalene was at the cross and that she was also one of the ones who came and discovered the empty tomb three days later. This leads us to believe that there was a high level of commitment and participation from Mary Magdalene. Uh, she was in it. Uh, she was in it in a very deep way. So that's kind of how I would explain it. We, we don't have any more evidence than that. Uh, let me just say one last thing about Mary Magdalene. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that she was a prostitute. Can I just say that? Many people assume, for whatever reason, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Now, I'm sure there were former prostitutes that served Jesus, and praise the Lord for every one of those, but Mary Magdalene was not among them. According to the Gospel of Luke, Mary Magdalene was one out of whom Jesus had cast seven demonic spirits, but nowhere does it say that she was a prostitute. So keep that in mind. Um, maybe when you get to heaven, there'll be a lady walking around with the sign around her neck, I wasn't a prostitute, and that's Mary Magdalene. Okay, so I hope that helps you there, Zachary. Next one, Susanna says, is it biblically correct for someone who has the gift of prophecy to call themselves a prophet? Susanna, I'm not going to give you a biblical answer, because if somebody were to only rely on the Bible here, which these words sound strange for me to say, because you know I'm a Bible guy, they would say, well, look, they called this person a prophet and that person a prophet and this person a prophet in the New Testament and that person a prophet. Here's the problem. We don't know, Mr. or Mrs. Prophet, that you have what you claim to have. And therefore, you shouldn't call yourself a prophet. We know Elijah was a prophet. We know Isaiah was a prophet. We know that um, Agabus was a prophet. We know that the daughters of Philip were prophetesses. We know that. We don't know that you're a prophet in the same way that you claim to be, in the same way that those were. So why don't you back off on the title of prophet? I find that when people start to take to themselves or receive from others the title of prophet or apostle, it changes how other people relate to them. Maybe that change is desired. Maybe it's not desired, but I think it's real nevertheless. You, you would have to admit that there's a big difference between me introducing myself to you as, hi, I'm David, or hi, I'm prophet David. Prophet David means I, I'm on a different level than you. Uh, I hear from God in a way that you don't hear from God. Now, let me say, I am in my understanding of the Bible what is sometimes called a continuationist. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today, 
but I see nothing positive and much harmful from people taking the title either prophet or apostle. If you feel that God has given you the gift of prophecy, then exercise it, let it be judged, as the New Testament says, and if you're right on, it will be evident. If you're not right on, it will be evident. You don't need the name or the title prophet in your name or on your business card to strengthen your image. That's just simply what I would say. That's my take on it. And I thank you for asking that question, Suzanne. I hope that's helpful for you. Breke, Woodworking says, in the Old Testament, did God speak to the prophets with an audible voice only? Breke, I would say, I would tend to think that we should only think that God spoke in an audible voice when it says that he spoke with an audible voice. If we see in the Old Testament or in the New Testament a place where it says that God spoke and the text either specifically or in the context does not indicate that it was audible, I think we can say that God spoke inaudibly. In other words, spoke in a way that didn't involve hearing of the natural ears. I spoke before of the trap of wanting to get a revelation from an angel. I'll give you another trap. It's wanting to hear God's voice. And I mean literally hear his voice with your biological ears. I'm not talking about in a spiritual sense in which Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Now, I believe that God is able to communicate with us in a way that simply bypasses our biological ears. Think about what the whole mechanism of hearing is. Uh, I speak, sound waves go out. Those sound waves impact your eardrum. There's some machinery in there that God has brilliantly designed that converts that vibration of the eardrum to what we might call some kind of electrical impulse that is carried up into my brain and deciphers what is being said. Now, if that's the mechanism God has created for us to hear an audible voice, why is not God perfectly capable of simply bypassing the eardrum and creating that electrical impulse another way? Or, or um, doing it in a way that just is, is, has to do with the thought that would come from something that was spoken. So no, I, I think again, this is a trap, the desire to audibly hear the voice of God. We have God's voice speaking to us loud and clear in the Bible. And, and that's what we should put our rest in. Whether or not the Old Testament prophets or others, I, I think that we should normally think that God did not speak to them like a voice in the air, except where it says that he did. Jane asks, in Exodus 22, when God lays down his laws, specifically social responsibility, verse 29, you must give me the firstborn of your sons. Is he just referring to circumcision again? Jane, that's a great question. And the answer to that is no. Uh, the firstborn of everything was dedicated unto God. And it was either dedicated to God in sacrifice. For example, if you had a cow, I guess it would be a heifer, and then the heifer got pregnant and the heifer gave birth to a calf, the firstborn would be sacrificed to God in a sacrifice. Now, not immediately after it was born, but after it had grown up a while. I don't know exactly when. I'd have to look it up. The firstborn was dedicated to God. Now, in the case of human beings, obviously, human beings were never to be sacrificed to God. The only time where anybody ever thought that God might want them to, and again, it was by God's direction, God said, stop. Don't sacrifice Isaac to me, Abraham. I'm not like those other gods. So what they did in ancient Israel was instead of offering the person, they gave a payment to substitute for the person. Now, they could also do that with their livestock. Let's say 
uh, the firstborn from that cow is born and you let it grow up for a few months and you're figuring when you're going to sacrifice it. But your little daughter falls so in love with that little cow. It's like a pet to her. And you think, I can't sacrifice that. My daughter would just die if I did. I can't do that. Listen, you could get a way around it in ancient Israel. You just had to take the monetary valuation of that calf and take that to the temple or the tabernacle instead of the calf itself. So, uh, no, the firstborn was given to God uh, among humans from the womb, but in a monetary valuation, not obviously in a human sacrifice. So it doesn't really have reference to circumcision, but to that. Okay, Christian says this. Hi, Pastor David. Um, are there modern day apostles? Let me get back to the question here. Oh, so many. Okay, are there modern day apostles? Is this a legitimate claim for those who call themselves apostles? Christian, I'll just repeat to you what I said before. Um, I think that no one today should take to themselves the title of apostle or prophet. It makes things weird. And even if it doesn't make some somebody weird in themselves, it makes other people let's say that I am so pure in my own heart and mind that I can take the title Apostle, Apostle David, and not get weird in myself. I don't know if I am that holy. That's why I don't do that at all. But let's say I'm so pure that it doesn't affect me at all. It will still affect the way other people treat me. And that's not right. It's not good. And this uh, new apostolic reformation is a movement that's fraught with danger. Um, I want to recommend to you a great book by somebody uh, called, I think it's called God's Super Apostles. Holly Pivik is the author of this book, and it's really good. I think a very fair treatment of um this whole idea of God establishing apostles today in the whole new apostolic reformation. Uh, this is a distraction from the real work of the gospel that we have. And if I could say a dangerous distraction, especially, especially dangerous in the new apostolic reformation is the idea that God has given modern day apostles authority over other people. There's no apostle that has authority over me. I am a free believer in Jesus Christ. And I won't accept being put under bondage to any human who calls themselves an apostle. I just don't think that's of the Lord. No, what we have is we have, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, I believe it is, we have the foundation of the apostles and prophets right here. Here is your apostolic authority right here. It's not in a person who claims to be an apostle. Uh, it's not an institution. It's in the God-inspired revelation given to us through the apostles and prophets. So no, that is something I am not in favor of today. Um, now, some people say, and there's some room for discussion like this. There's the argument that goes like this. The word apostle basically means ambassador. And God raises up certain ambassadors or representatives in his church. And he's done that throughout church history. And so you, you can have, you know, apostles with a capital A, and then you can have apostles with a small a. Okay, I, if somebody wants to talk about apostles in a very, very much lesser sense than that, just those who are sent, those who are sent with authority, those who are like ambassadors. Okay, but just make sure it's very clear what you're talking about and that you're not claiming authority as the first century apostles and prophets had. Okay, uh, Broken People says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. What does that mean? Lord bless you, Pastor David. Well, broken people, I think I can get it at like this. Is what he's saying is that 
when a person is um, led by God's Spirit, and if I could say informed by God's Spirit, they have discernment. They can make proper judgments about all kinds of things. However, nobody can really sit in judgment of them because they are informed of the Holy Spirit and walking in the Spirit. These are not things that should be judged as like absolute, such as I should say like this. Um, hey, um, I'm filled with the Spirit. I walk in the Spirit. Therefore, no one at any time has any right to pass judgment upon me or to assess my life or ministry. That's not what it means. This is speaking in generalities. And basically, it's speaking in that second aspect that we don't sit under the dominion of other people. I want you to understand that. Um, we are free men and women in Jesus Christ. We should be like that iron sharpening iron. We should be exhorting each other, rebuking one another, instructing one another, reproving one another when all that's necessary. But ultimately, you as a believer and I as a believer, we answer to God and, and God will judge us. There's nobody who sits in a lordship situation over our faith or over our conscience. Um, so anyway, I, I think that's really the sense there, broken people. And thank you for your prayers for Enduring Word. I really appreciate that. Devin, great to hear from you. Thank you for this. Uh, Jose says, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 20, when Michael talks about fighting the prince of Persia and the prince of Grisha, does this mean that Satan has demonic angels doing his work in some countries? Jose, I'm just going to give you a very simple answer to that. Yes. Yes. Satan is smart and he's strategic. We, we kind of know these things from the Bible. He's smart and he's strategic. Therefore, he sets up his work intelligently. He assigns, he employs, he directs, he organizes. And we have some scriptural reason to believe that at least sometimes that's saying, okay, you demonic spirits, you focus on this nation, and I want you, XYZ, demonic spirit, to lead the work. So I don't think we need to know great details over this, but just to know that it's out there, just to know that Satan is smart and he's strategic. And that we need to be wary of him and his devices because of that. Karina says, blessings, David. Why didn't Jesus baptize but only his disciples? Thank you. Greetings from Mexico. Karina, once again, blessings to you. So appreciate my brothers and sisters in Mexico. That's a good question, Karina. Why did not Jesus baptize directly? I think that's in John chapter 2. Maybe I'm guessing. Uh, but it, it is in the Gospel of John where it mentions that Jesus and his disciples baptized. They baptized in the manner of the baptism of John, but they did it before the church was founded on the day of Pentecost. But when it explains that in the scriptures, it explains that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only disciples. I have a feeling, I can't say it's much more than a feeling, that this was for a very practical reason. And what's the practical reason? Because if Jesus was the one baptizing, everyone would want to get baptized by him. Jesus had the wisdom to, as much as he could, push ministry down, get other people involved in ministry. And Jesus kind of knew that if I'm the guy that does this, I will take up all the room in this particular ministry. I don't want to do that. I will not do it. Therefore, I'm not going to baptize I want my disciples to do that work. It may have been just that simple from a practical viewpoint. That's the best answer I would give there, Karina. Uh, Margie asks, how are you doing through this season of time? Well, Margie, I'm doing very well. Uh, thankfully, my family and the people I know in my circle, they're all healthy. Um we pray not only regarding the global uh, pandemic, uh, but we also pray, of course, regarding the great um, racial difficulty in our country right now. Um, 
we need to know and just think of how much we love our dear brothers and sisters in Christ of every race, including, of course, our black brothers and sisters. Um, and we need to think carefully as well that every human being, no matter what their race or origin, they deserve justice, in particular, our black brothers and sisters. So it's something for us to pray for, to be concerned about, and to respond, I think, biblically. Um, again, you could go back to the video I did earlier this week. But how are we doing? We're doing well. Thank you for asking. Um, Dennis says, good afternoon, Pastor Guzik. If someone doesn't have the Holy Spirit, can they still believe Jesus is God in the flesh as the second person of the Trinity? Dennis, that's a great question. And I'm just going to give you the answer that comes to my mind. Listen, some of the answers that I give, I think, well, I, I'll tell you what first comes to mind, but you know, later on, I might have a different idea. But let me just give you this idea, is that someone can know accurate facts about God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But true belief, true trust in Jesus Christ, to trust in him, to rely on him, to cling to him, to be able to do that, that is not a matter of just near, merely knowing facts about God, but truly trusting in Jesus, not trusting in yourself, but trusting in him. That's something that can only happen by the work of the Spirit of God in a person. So yes, I would say somebody can know the right facts about God apart from a unique work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but someone can only trust in God uh, if the Holy Spirit does that work in them. Okay, I'm going to come to an end pretty soon. I do want to get to David Pham. God bless you, David Pham. It's nice to read your name here in the chat window. And I hope that you and Becky and your family are doing well. Uh, we pray for you guys and get your newsletters and such. Anyway, uh, thank you for your kind words. Uh, I will say hi to my wife, Ingalil, from you and Becky. God bless you. And um, I know several more questions here. Great questions. Uh, we're coming up over past the 50-minute mark. I'm going to have to uh, end it here, and we'll save. I'll save the questions that we didn't get to and hope to get to them later. But as for now, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today on today's question and answer. I do appreciate your prayers for the work of Enduring Word uh, as we continue forth, especially in the work that we have with translation of our Bible commentary into other languages. Right now, we've got a special focus on Arabic and Chinese. The Arabic commentary is finished in the New Testament. Praise the Lord. Now we have a great work in getting word out about it so that people can use it. Uh, same true with the Chinese. Uh, it's not quite finished in the New Testament, but almost there. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for joining me today. And I look forward to seeing you next Thursday on another edition of our live question and answer. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.